Hong Kong action star Jackie Chan has long been one of China's most internationally recognized celebrities, but in recent years he stirred controversy with a series of comments seen by liberal Chinese as supporting the Communist Party's oppressive policies. Now his political leanings seem to be paying off. Chan has been appointed a Hong Kong representative to the China People's Political Consultative Conference, the official top advisory body to the Communist Party authorities. While the body itself is seen to have little actual power, it is an important symbol of what are called in Chinese Guangxi close connections in personal and political networks. These in turn lead to lucrative financial opportunities. In Chan's case, the move is not seen as a surprise. He has long been on the record describing his fellow Chinese citizens as having, quote, low quality and requiring a strong authoritarian state to guide them. Recently, he went on the record saying that protest rights should be restricted. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, hey guys. Welcome to the real State of the Union. Yeah, it's good to be back. Did you watch any of the State of the Union? The I, watched, I watched part of it. It's one of those things where I kind of told myself I'm not going to watch any of it. And then, you know, as you know, you're just sitting on Twitter and whatever, I was like, I'll just, just put it on for a few minutes. So I think I got through about five minutes of it. I got through enough to watch uh, when Donald Trump kind of obliquely attacked Colin Kaepernick by talking about, you know, how important it is that everyone stand for the national anthem. One senator, Tim Kaine, uh, stood up and enthusiastically applauded that. So Uh, hashtag resist, folks. Tim Kaine in the membrane. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't watch the State of the Union. I counter-programmed with David Letterman's new talk show on Netflix. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, And his first guest, my president, uh, Mr. (laughs) Barack Obama. You know, David Letterman, absolutely one of my heroes. Yeah. I will say I'm glad that he has a show again. It's hard to watch him become an MSNBC grandpa. Uh, I, I mean, you know, David Letterman is somebody who made a career out of being snarky and deconstructing the talk show medium and being absolutely just an ice cold personality. And I think there's something sort of sweet about the fact that he wants to be a good man now. And, he, you know, he's he's troubled by Donald Trump and he wants, you know, wants to make the world a better place. I understand one of the future episodes of this show, he has a segment about Syrian refugees. Right. You know, it's sweet. Um, I don't know if an hour long interview with Barack Obama is really what he's well, you know, what was the thing for. you said that obama said about yeah how, about like uh, uh, yeah he said it, it was every just kind of like every trope soft of normie liberal, liberalism yeah, yeah you know but at one point obama said something along the lines of uh, you know it used to be um uh that despite our differences we were all working from uh, the same basic group of facts and we, we, we had facts in common <sighs> and now if you watch fox news or if you watch npr uh, you, you're on a different planet from the other person. And it made me think of the glory days when we all had the same when, facts. When there, was like, the, you when know, there were the same sets of facts. Like where whites, said, whites only black drinking people, fountains. Black people are human beings or they're not. The yeah. same set of facts. Yeah, yeah. The, the same set of facts that said that homosexuality is a mental disorder. Right. And it was just hard to watch, you know? You know, when Donald Trump becomes president after eight years yeah. of Obama, it's hard to... It's hard to kind of <laughs> see what... Because, I mean, so much of the Obama presidency was premised on 
this kind of redemptive arc. Like, there was a kind of end of history quality about it. I mean, you saw that in the kind of early think pieces about how, you know, it was the first post-racial presidency and stuff like that. But, and then, of course, it was immediately subject to this kind of, in 2009, this, like, white nationalist backlash. And uh, then, of course, by, you know, 2016, here's Donald Trump. Something so. about seeing Obama and Trump in the White House together the next day, it was such a painful image. Yeah. Because it was, like, definitive proof that the Obama project had failed. Yeah. It's, but it, then, it, at well, some point, it stopped being painful and it became almost liberating. For me, like success and failure is not the right like i mean i wrote that article um last year with nathan robinson at current affairs where in a big way we were trying to argue is the correct way of thinking about the obama presidency isn't that it's like a noble experiment that was tried and failed it's that it was much more orthodox from the beginning than people kind of wanted to believe you know i, th I think it was on a recent episode we talked about you know how there was that david brooks piece where the Obama White House had written anxiously to Brooks to reassure him that this was like a hundred days in the or less, I think, in the Obama presidency. They were committed to, as they put it, entitlement reform. They mm -hmm. accepted the Reagan revolution. Like a lot of that was actually there. And I think, I mean, certainly for myself, I just chose to ignore it at the time. You know, because because it was like so much easier and more fun to believe the other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know. So you were in New York recently. Yeah, I was. Perhaps a topic relevant to the movie we're going to talk about today. I was in New York to go to a six film Hong Kong action movie marathon. That folks, that is like one of the most will slowing sentences <laughs> ever. Yeah. New York's interesting. You know, I was walking around Midtown to go to the MoMA the next day. And I feel like one's relationship with New York, if, if one has a sort of long-term relationship with it, goes through different stages of, love and disillusionment and, and a lot of people may not realize this but uh, i mean you did live in new york when because you went to columbia yeah i, I did a year so you, you have a real relationship with it more more so than i do i mean what's kind of weird for me is like i feel like there's like a whole scene that's kind of there that i'm sort of vaguely like part of through social media but i've only been there once in the last 10 years but i think like i, I feel like you have a much tighter connection to the the place than i do I mean, I remember the first time I went to New York in 2002 when I was 13. And when you're kind of a kid going to New York and perhaps you've seen Annie Hall or some movie like that, like, you know, it's like, wow, look at this. Here it is. It's New York. And well, New York exists on a kind of imperial scale where like something like the Empire State Building is not just a building. It's an idiom. You know, it's like a cultural idiom for something much grander. It's like if you've been in a room when a celebrity is there. Being in New York is like that at every street corner in certain areas where you walk and you see Radio City Music Hall and it's like, oh, there's Radio City Music Hall. It's a celebrity. So early in one's relationship with New York, I think one is kind of in awe of it because yeah. it looks so much like New York. And when I was walking on my way to the MoMA on this trip, and I'm, I'm, I've always been aware that Manhattan is a playground for the rich now and that all of Midtown and huge parts of the rest of the city too are tourist traps yeah but i was so conscious of all these new york diners in midtown that look like new york diners but they look like cartoon new york diners yeah it's like so much of the city is kind of a simulacrum of what it once was new york is a postmodern pastiche of new york <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i remember when i was at journalism school i did a, a radio piece about the chelsea hotel which 
as recently as 2012 was still a haven for bohemian artist types in Manhattan, but um, the owners were trying to get all of the artists out so they could turn the hotel into this kind of tourist trap, nostalgia style hotel, you know, cashing in on the Chelsea hotel name. Mm. So there's a certain amount of disillusionment that comes, you know, if you've been to New York enough times to know that so much of it is not, I mean, I don't know what authenticity is exactly, but, but I know, I know it when I see it. Yeah. It's, of course, it's a hard question to answer, but like, to me, modernism of the kind that, you know, New York would have embodied before what you're talking about occurred. I mean, I don't know if there's such a thing as pure authenticity, but that's more authentic than the kind of postmodern condition that you're describing, where the city has to kind of cannibalize its own identity. Mm -hmm. And just just before uh, we did the episode, we were listening to um, a piece from that David Harvey lecture about how, you know, Harvey points out that... uh, People often cite Chile as the first place where kind of, you know, neoliberal, you know, shock reforms and austerity were tried for the first time. But New York City, in some ways, was was kind of an earlier case because there was a big budget crisis and the kind of municipality of New York was disciplined by various actors uh, higher up. And that was the beginning of this process of like the hyper financialization of New York and kind of its its conversion into a full-blown playground for the rich. And one of the things that they did was they wanted to market it kind of internationally. And that's where, you know, I think they paid some marketing guru to come up with this, you know, I love New York Hmm. thing, you know, which is, I think it's fair to say, a brand that transcends the space of New York. You'll see people with that shirt in like probably every country in the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's a kind of tragedy to postmodernism. And I feel like that kind of encapsulates it very well. One of the things I did in New York was I saw the restoration of a little movie called Police Story. Uh, at, nice. at the goddamn Museum of Modern Art, <laughs> a, a 1985 film starring a man who is never far from my thoughts, Mr. <laughs> Jackie Chan. Goddamn great film. <laughs> I mean, longtime fans of me <laughs> will know that on my other podcast, The Important Cinema Club, we did a Jackie Chan episode. Uh, and I think he's one of the greatest entertainers in the world. And there's a scene in Police Story when he's fighting by a car and he like falls backwards into the back seat and then he projects his body backwards through the car window and it's one second on screen and you think of how hard it is to just do a backflip and this guy's scenes were so dense and complicated that's not the film we watched tonight (laughs) Uh, we watched 2012's chinese zodiac from (laughs) jackie chan's beijing period All those years ago, because of war, my ancestors brought back things that did not belong to them. And every time I look at that bronze, it shouldn't belong to one or two individuals. Ladies and gentlemen, there are only four in the world. We'd seen this movie before. We, in fact, saw it, I guess, what, the Toronto premiere of it? One of the two times you and I have seen Jackie Chan... Live uh, in person, Live yeah. in person. I guess it's fair to say we both have a relationship with Jackie Chan's uh, work. For people who don't know, Will is a, a legitimate scholar of Jackie Chan. And I kind of... He was big in, in my house for some reason. I'm not really sure how, you know, we encountered him. But, like, my mom and brother and I... I mean, we all did martial arts when I was, like, you know, 12 or something. And we, w- we ended up watching a lot of Jackie Chan movies. And we even read, as a family, his 
autobiography. I am Jackie Chan. I am Jackie Chan, now with an exciting new chapter. (laughs) You know, I could never find the edition that didn't have the exciting new chapter, which is a little suspicious, but... One of the most battered books on my shelf. (laughs) Yeah, I just remember, like, when a book gets so many folds that the spine is, like, you can't read it anymore. That book was great, too, because it had appendices where there was, like, you know, my 10 greatest stunts... Or my ten worst injuries. <laughs> I liked uh, I liked the picture sections in it, and I just remember there was this one where um it was like a picture of him and Maggie Chung and someone else, and then the caption was like, "Here's one of the great loves of my life." I'm talking, of course, about auto racing, and not my friend and frequent co-star Maggie Chung. That's funny because in real life, Jackie Chan is, of course, in a a noted Lothario, <laughs> allegedly. Well, he's, he like allegedly has... Well, he had a child out of wedlock with uh, Miss Asia, who he has never acknowledged. Right, and that's like for sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. absolutely public uh, record. Sorry, I just, I don't mm-hmm. want to irritate our sponsor for this episode, the People's Republic of China, so... <laughs> that book, I Am Jackie Chan, was really part of Jackie's journey his, to the West. His North American flourishing. And it was very much a kind of immigrant success story mm-hmm. about this guy who always wanted to make it big in America, and now he finally is. He's got Rush Hour coming mm-hmm. out. Rumble in the Bronx. Yeah. America only lasted so long for Jackie Chan. I don't think there were a lot of great opportunities for middle-aged Chinese action star. Even if he was friends with Sylvester Stallone. And also, China's film industry started booming, not only because China itself started booming, but because they really started investing more into their film industry. They started allowing a certain number of American movies to play in China so that they could fund their theaters, which would build a film industry. And the movies in China, it's a very censorious society, and Mm -hmm. the government definitely regards movies as an instrument of soft power. And Jackie's various personal scandals alienated him somewhat from Hong Kong. So uh, he found a new home in Beijing and started making films that I guess could be generously described as political art. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we should just go through you know, Jackie Chan's biography a little bit, because, you you know, you've kind of described his, like, current period. But what came before that? He came from a very poor family. He was basically sold like an indentured servant into the Peking Opera School, where, you know, as a child, he went through... Literal hell. Horrific slave training from morning to night. And this Peking Opera School, you know, produced just an army of choreographers and stuntmen who would build like, the Hong Kong film like industry. Like Sammo Hung came out of there. Yeah. Um, Yuen Biao. Yuen Biao. And Jackie started as a stuntman. You can see him uh, very briefly in Enter the Dragon and in Fist of Fury getting kicked across the room by Bruce Lee. Of course, he came to prominence by subverting the Bruce Lee image, by really popularizing the kung fu comedy form. And then in the 80s and early 90s, really came into his own as sort of the Buster Keaton of action comedy. I regard him as one of the greatest entertainers in the world. There are a few entertainers who disappoint me quite as much as Jackie Chan. Right, because he hasn't been good for, like he hasn't made a film that's good since like before 2000. Yeah, right? it's, I mean, it's been a while since he's made like a fully unqualified, very good movie. And you know, he is a mouthpiece for the People's Republic now. It's been very lucrative for him in the People's Republic. He's has unimaginable wealth now. He has a huge business portfolio. And he is one of the most famous people in the world. I mean, absolutely. like the first time we saw him, I mean, there were people who were, there was a guy who just basically asked in the Q&A, like, can I touch you? 
Yes. Like, can I take a picture with you? And, and he was like shaking his hands like kind of a leper waiting to be blessed and have the, you know, it was, it was incredible. I think that's the first time I'd really come up against like just how famous Jackie Chan is because he's certainly a celebrity in the West, but you really can't comprehend the scale of how famous he is just given how big China is and how many fans he has there. Now, when we saw him at the 2013 Toronto International Film Festival, he was promoting this movie Chinese Zodiac that was going to come out. And he was talking about artifact repatriation. And the actual transcript of what he said is, everybody knows in Paris, in the US, in London, there are so many treasures from other countries. I think right now we're talking about one world. One world, now it's so close. Why don't we just give back everything? And it was such a weird atmosphere in the audience that day because, of course, we'd applauded everything he said. Yeah, he'd had a lot of kind of just generic platitudes and kind of inspiring. The world should be a better place. Yeah, we should all stop fighting each other. And it's like we all applauded. And they brought Chris Tucker out as well, which was pretty fun. But we didn't applaud that. And it wasn't so much disapproval that was going through the theater, but just this kind of uncertainty. Yeah. Like, what are we signing up for? Yeah, what am I committing to with applause? So about a year later, we saw China. Zodiac. Mm -hmm. And uh, is it possible for you to describe the plot of this film? It's going to be difficult, but I'll, you know, I'll give it the old college try. (laughs) So Jackie Chan is a kind of what kung fu indiana jones yeah a treasure hunter he's a you know a rogue yeah definitely a mercenary a globe-trotting mercenary and he's part of a what a movement to to recapture chinese artifacts that were pillaged by like the film opens with a really generic montage about foreign invaders in the 1860s raided the imperial palace and stole you know all these artifacts and burned the palace to the ground and so they've been spread throughout the world and in particular the 12 chinese zodiac heads right which for the last 15 years have been auctioned at big prices all over the world Mm -hmm. much to china's i guess national humiliation yeah and so the film is basically just him and a kind of a group of people who i feel like the film never adequately introduces us to (laughs) there's there's a lot of care it's very it's like war and peace this it's really there's so many characters like i don't think i could name another character in the movie besides the jackie chan character who appropriately is named jc um because this is basically a documentary about jackie chan but so he just kind of does stunts for like i mean it's really long it's two hours we watch there's a version it's 109 minutes in the West. Yeah, there's a version in the West that cuts out some of the really good propaganda stuff. Yeah, and the propaganda stuff is incredible. Yeah. I mean, there's a scene where, I guess about a third of the way into the film, where they get admitted to this kind of French chateau where their hostess, has, her great-grandfather was part of a you know an expedition which stole a bunch of stuff. So they got this room full of treasure. And then one of JC's kind of collaborators who's with him just says, like, it's so heavy-handed this movie. She says, like, was it really moral? for two industrialized nations to ta- attack an agrarian power or something. <laughs> I've in fact got some good transcribed dialogue from this. She says, Over a century ago, you came to our country to rape, pillage, and murder. Even a hundred years later, these memories still hurt the Chinese. And then this French woman, the heiress to the wealthy dynasty, says, It's true. I studied history. Whatever the excuses used, these things did indeed happen. Sometimes we can only explain such things with invalid reasons, such as, that was an era in which might makes right. And then... As opposed to now. (laughs) Yeah. And then Jackie, who's kind of the uh, moderator of this Socratic dialogue, (laughs) says, 
We cannot use today's civilized standards to judge the mistakes of the past. <laughs> Even now, it's the strong who come out on top. You must have power before others will reason with you. And the French woman eventually backs down. But there's a great part where Jackie says, The killing of the British and French diplomats by the corrupt King dynasty was an excuse to start the war. <laughs> Just absolute delirious, you know, government speak. <laughs> yeah. But I think my favorite part of the movie is just a little bit earlier than that when JC, he's the start of the movie is a mercenary and he's like stealing uh, artifacts so that he can give them to, you know, cynical Western auctioneers. Uh, and in fact, Oliver Platt, as one of the auctioneers says, uh, huh, those Chinese, their patriotism equals our profit. <laughs> but Jackie goes to this, this loft where there's this grassroots movement. Oh, yeah, that's so beautiful. <laughs> Uh, do you remember what the dialogue is where 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 like two of them have just come from a protest and they're complaining that they've been like attacked by the police or something and then one of the people from the this you know organization that looks like it's a small non-profit that just like exists in paris for some reason yeah to recover lost chinese artifacts she's like we have several rules in our movement you know one we never get involved. We never interfere with the police. Two, we never disrupt the social order. And she, then Jackie, she actually says yeah, that. We she, never disrupt the social and order. Then, and the, the Jackie Chan, is, his character is just like off to the side and he just sort of butts in and he's like, I support you. <laughs> yeah. It's such a kind of strange beast, this movie. It's very much like derivative of Jackie Chan's older movies. It's this like globe-trotting. Yeah, and carnival-esque kind of comedy. Like it's action, but it's very goofy. And, very goofy. Yeah, extremely. Like the dialogue is like embarrassing sometimes. And yet interspersed throughout are these incredibly awkward scenes where they just recite dialogue that seems like it was scripted by some government body. Somewhere. It looks like they ran the script by the Central Committee of the Communist Party Mm -hmm. And then, you know, some censor, I don't know if this actually happens in China. I think in, in, in some cases, you know, it did happen in the old Soviet Union where, you know, you actually have to run something by like a board of censors. They definitely do that. Yeah. And then there would just be these like hilarious edits to things to make them like politically correct. It does kind of feel like this is a generic Jackie Chan action comedy that's had, you know, some committee of state beer. Although I don't think in the, I don't think you have to tell Jackie to think, like, I don't think he has to think twice about inserting that kind of stuff. Well, he's somebody who, you know, unlike some filmmakers in China, you know, everybody in the mainland is subjected to this process, but he's somebody who seems an active collaborator with the government. Mm -hmm. He performed at the Beijing Olympics. He's, I think, part of some government bodies in some capacity. He had a movie out a year ago called Kung Fu Yoga. Terrible film. But You've it, seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> and it was one of several movies that were commissioned out of this collaboration between China and India. Uh, the, the one belt, one road policy, I believe it was. And in fact, there is a line of dialogue in that movie where somebody says, it is consistent with the one belt, one road policy. Wow. <laughs> Did you like as the movie went on that like news broadcast scene? Oh, that was incredible. <laughs> so one of the things that's really funny about this movie, I mean, so it is absolutely kind of a propagandistic, you know, rise of China, you know, restoring China's place among you know, the great nations type type movie. But um, it also has this faint pretense to kind of universalism. It's just so cringy as the film wears on. It keeps insinuating that there's like this global grassroots movement to like <laughs> restore the artifacts. I think you wrote about this a few years ago and there was a passage that I remembered that was 
about this that was quite striking. So this is from an article I wrote. I'll just read my brilliant, beautiful prose here (laughs) from an article I wrote in 2015 for Hazlitt called Jackie Chan, the anti-Ai Weiwei. Uh, Maybe I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I wrote brilliantly, The movie takes pains to position artifact repatriation as not exclusively a Chinese concern. In a montage of news broadcasts, we see Indian and Egyptian newscasters lamenting the loss of their own national treasures. Though ineptly handled, these scenes suggest a mix of patriotism and globalism that could have been quite potent. We all love our countries, Chan argues, but we're also members of the same human family. How important are our differences when we share so many common values? (laughs) And don't you think this is kind of like key to... China's particular kind of global agenda? Well, I feel like, you know, globalism is part of, like, China has been, in some ways, like, so much at the vanguard of globalization. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that also, I mean, I'm not sure how, like, fair it is to say this about, you know, Jackie Chan specifically, because I'm not, like, I don't, I mean, he certainly wouldn't think about it this way. It would be fair to say the kind of imperial mindset undergirding a, a story like this in that kind of mindset, there's always, I think, a tension between nationalism and universalism. I think, like, the most fervent nationalism is one that kind of is able to kind of justify itself on some kind of universal grounds. I mean, the rhetoric, say, of, like, British imperialism was always kind of where this global humanizing force, and of course, like, that's what the rhetoric of the American empire is, too. And if China ever becomes an empire on the scale of the American empire, then I'm sure that that's the kind of rhetoric it will use. So I I do think in kind of, yeah, like, I don't know, nationalist internationalism of the kind that this film is kind of weirdly channeling, like that tension is always there and it's an interesting one. One of the big things that you're doing is serving as an ambassador for the Beijing Olympic Games. But there are plenty of people who are extremely concerned. They say that China doesn't deserve to have the Olympics because it hasn't dealt with pollution and human rights, for example. Are you saying that those things don't concern you? That's not China problem. It's the whole world problem. But it's inside China. Yeah. It's got to be dealt with from the inside but first. How, you look at the pollution in LA. You look at the pollution in, 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 in Russia. You look at the pollution in everywhere around the world. That's the whole world problem. There are so many countries have a human right, but now everybody just against China. No, that's, a, that's a not fair. That's a more politic than, 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 than the Olympic. They use the Olympic to do something. Let China change. We change not, cannot be one day. Everybody can see China change. We have 1.4 billion people, not 300 million people. That's so many problems in China. The movie's kind of ironic because the 12 Zodiac heads are such a cause celeb in China. Like in the first scene, we see, you know, French and British troops pillaging the Summer Palace. But I mean, China is a society that has steamrolled so much of its, its past to create like it's a society that has no qualms of just demolishing a village yeah i mean it's a hyper modernist i mean the modern chinese national project is like yeah very destructive in a way a movie like this is so disingenuous Mm -hmm. it's just it doesn't care about these zodiac heads except for the cultural humiliation Mm -hmm. that's true it is kind of it is really a question of national honor as opposed Mm -hmm. to like the film I feel like doesn't actually have a lot of reverence for them as objects. Like it doesn't really develop what they signify. It's all about like the theft of them. And of course there's that great moment at the end when just this interminable scene where he's in the hospital after like falling down a volcano in <laughs> yeah. a sort of Michelin man costume. 
after jumping out of a plane looking like Will Smith's Hancock character <laughs> with those goggles. He's yeah. in the hospital, sort of convalescing. And, you know, all the some of those sort of former villains are there. A guy who, we're told, stole an artifact and started a border war, and he's just there. And, and he like, is the scumbag of our profession. Yeah, that's right. But by the end of the movie, he's rehabilitated. He's just there, yeah. and they're like, you know, and he's like, you know, you got class, my man, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then the French character, she gives one of JC's compatriots this old imperial painting, and she says, you know, you taught me that this was stealing or something. <laughs> She's like, you know, you'll use it better than any banker ever would or something. Yeah. I'm just going to give it back. Um, you, you before, I think as as we were watching the movie, you had a great quote that sort of sums up Jackie Chan's political outlook. I feel we'd be in dereliction of our duty if you didn't read it. So um, Jackie Chan was somebody who had a lot of his career in Hong Kong, but has kind of since, as you said before relocated to Beijing and there was an interview a few years ago where he kind of articulated what his politics were. Aside from the scandals in his personal life, one of the decisive factors in I guess hastening his exit from Hong Kong and his relocation to Beijing was a statement he made in 2009 at an economic forum in China when he said, quote, I'm not sure if it is good to have freedom or not. I'm really confused now. If you are too free, you are like the way Hong Kong is now. It's very chaotic. Taiwan is also chaotic. I'm gradually beginning to feel that we Chinese need to be controlled. If we are not being controlled, we'll just do what we want. <laughs> it's pretty sinister. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, scary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Jackie will also tell you he's not political. <laughs> well, didn't he say that at the screening, that it wasn't a political film or something? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> so that screening of this movie was one of the best experiences of my life. Oh uh, man, well because do you remember how they baited us before? So yeah, so Jackie Chan had been in town for a few days, you know, introducing various screenings, but we were told that he wasn't going to be able to make it to this one. He had to get on a plane back to China, and so oh, we were crestfallen. So, the room was just yeah. We saw yeah. a, l a little video intro that he recorded where he was like, uh, oh, you know, it's a uh, biggest movie of all time in China, but is it good? I mean, I don't know. You know, you can, you can decide. Yeah. So we watched the movie. And of course, I think within 20 minutes, everyone was kind of on the same page about what kind of a movie this was. So we were all kind of having a good time. Yeah. And then, you know, out comes somebody who then says, we got a, we got a special guest. We have a special, folks. ladies and gentlemen, Jackie Chan. And he comes out and of just course, waving, we like... all leapt to our feet. It was just such an emotional moment. But then I think what I heard later was, that he was in the balcony watching this movie with us. So, so. he would have heard our friend uh, cackling maniacally <laughs> throughout the movie and all the stupid heavy-handed dialogue. Yeah, I, I mean, I said this on my other podcast, but like our friend Dan turned around to us and said, boy, I feel really bad about stealing all those Chinese artifacts. <laughs> and then, of course... Yeah, I wrote to my MP. And the first thing Jackie said was he pointed to the screen. He goes, there were a lot of messages in it, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> Oh, oh man, that was, that was great. <laughs> and then he said, and then of course he started to get a little apologetic. And he's like, I know some of the dialogue's not perfect, some of the, but it uh, is the biggest movie in yeah. China of all time. No big deal. Yeah, it is interesting to me. I think I said this to you at one point in the film that a film like this, and this can't last. But or I mean, it doesn't seem to me it can last. You know more about the global film market than I do. But to have a film like this, which is the biggest movie in the most populous country in the history of you know, human civilization. Mm -hmm. 
and it just doesn't register in the West at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is incredible. Like, unless you were at that screening, you probably weren't going to see that movie. Yeah. Um, in in Toronto, it seems to me that the global film market can't. It's not going to remain that bifurcated forever, right? I mean, and how many Chinese movies? So, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was a big hit in the West. I mean, how many films really make it? Because there are a lot of films that, like you've mentioned to me that I've just never heard of, that are huge successes in China, and they just don't register here at all. Well, you know, here in Toronto, we have the Young and Dundas Cineplex, where there are probably four or five screens that are at any time are playing Chinese movies. But they play mostly for the Chinese diaspora here Mm -hmm. in Toronto. I see some of them sometimes, Mm -hmm. but it's not really for us. There is some uh, attention between Hollywood and China. There's a good article in the New Film Comment by Nick Pinkerton about this, actually, that I would recommend. But... China lets in a certain amount of American movies because it needs American movies to keep the theaters running and to fund its own film industry. But America wants to get its movies into China because it's the second biggest market in the world. And there are so many American movies that flopped in in America that went in the black in China. Mm-hmm. Thus, they put start yeah. putting like Chinese characters into Rogue One just so that they can show the movie yeah china and more than that in fact there are some movies like iron man 3 as an example that had scenes shot specifically for the chinese market and there are other movies like you know some of the fast and furious movies some of the dark knight movies that are made partly with chinese money so the dark knight has a scene where batman goes to hong kong Mm -hmm. you know that's partly right that's the beginning of this kind of globalizing or triple x the revenge of xander cage i I confess i i never saw that was vin diesel in that one he he was indeed but you know the cast of that movie includes donnie yen in it Mm -hmm. um and it also has a bollywood star in it and it's because it has money from all these countries and last year there was a real attempt to make a big crossover Chinese Hollywood oh, this co-production. Is, this is, I love this uh, this case. The Great Wall, starring <laughs> uh, Mr. Matthew Damon. And people were a little angry that <laughs> Matt Damon was starring in the movie. Yeah, I mean, there was. I saw so many people on Twitter say, "Wow, way to whitewash this story <laughs> about the Great Wall of China," mm. not understanding that the film, you know, was directed by Zhang Yimou, who staged the opening ceremony at the Beijing Olympics. You know, it's a Chinese propaganda film that they cast a white guy in. Funded by the state? Yeah, funded partly by the state so that it would play theatrically and so that these people would see it in America. (laughs) I mean, that's not the problem. (laughs) The the problem is not that it's a PRC propaganda film. The problem is that it was whitewashed (laughs) by the Chinese themselves. We've been seeing the the crackdown by China um, on protesters in Tibet. Are you worried at least about the way that the world sees China about the image that China has ahead of the games? I think a lot of people, I I, I don't know politics, I just uh, know a lot of people use the good timing to do some things to force China government. I want to do that, I want want this. I don't know who's right, who's wrong. I don't, that's a history problem. We'd plan to do this last time and um, you know, I think, you know, sometimes uh, we get to the end of the episode and it's, you know, late at night and our brains are fried. So we don't we don't get to talk about everything we want to. But you've been working on a, a pretty interesting project, which uh, I don't know how much you can say about it yet. But um, I think it, you know, it definitely touches on, you know, a few areas of interest for you that kind of things that you've got me interested in. I wanted to ask you a bit about it. I've got like a, a small book project that I'm working on now that I'm, I, I've shown you a bit of it. Yeah, um, it's really good, folks. You should buy it when it's picked up, I'm sure, by a, yeah. 
by a big publishing house. Yeah, or, or when I just put it on the internet for free. <laughs> but I am interested in doing kind of like my definitive statement on bad art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't quite want to say yet what the angle of approach is, mm-hmm. but I, I think bad art is a mutual interest of ours. Yeah. Because, you know, maybe it sounds banal to say, but there is a thin line between good art and bad art. And there is so much bad art that has a certain power to it. And good and bad are not very easily delineated. A movie like Chinese Zodiac in its badness can tell us so much. Mm-hmm. And other sorts of bad movies can attain a certain kind of surrealism. Or I think there are certain kinds of bad movies that especially coming out of the ass end of Hollywood that are so kind of mired in cliche and bring together so many discarded parts from the higher echelons of Hollywood that they can become sort of Hollywood dreamscapes in a way. Because cliches are kind of, they're like pickled conventional wisdom from mm-hmm. like a given time. Mm-hmm. And that can that can kind of tell us so much, even if the film is terrible and fails on every level about what people thought art was Mm. at a given time or what they thought you know what they thought gender was or what they thought you know yeah uh, you know and there's so they do they do convey a lot now you know so uh, a big popular movie this year is the disaster artist which i've not yet seen but you know the room became a cult sensation right it's the classic Mm -hmm. bad movie um it's a film that a lot of people would say you know it's so bad that it's good and I think, you know, that's something that yeah, I, one of our kind of earliest conversations I remember was actually about bad art. And I, I think it'd be fair to say that kind of all along, you've been kind of um, a critic of the and a skeptic about the so bad it's good kind of theory of bad art. Mm-hmm. What do you think the kind of alternative is? I mean, on some level, if you're compelled by it, it almost becomes a counter aesthetic uh, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't go so far as to say the room is good, but I mean, I remember when I was. Well, it's not good, clearly. Yeah, but but I mean, when I was to use perhaps a, a better example, when I was growing up, I used to love Godzilla movies to laugh at. Mm-hmm. I used to love, you know, the idea that oh, look at these, look at these movies with a guy in a rubber suit, you know, <laughs> and look how fake it is. And there came a point when I realized, wait a minute, they get it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a counter aesthetic. And in fact, there's something kind of beautiful about it. I think I would just encourage, you know, a more imaginative approach to bad art, because, you know, oftentimes things can be bad in a way that are challenging, just because something, you know, ticks off all the boxes of competence. You know, there are so many movies that are that are good or that we perceive as good because they sort of flatter the status quo. Mm -hmm. They, They flatter us. And there are, there are so many bad movies that in addition, you know, either have a certain kind of poetry or a certain kind of beauty, or they can tell us something perhaps difficult or unpleasant about us, as The Room does, I think. Like, and I think any of us can maybe identify a little bit with Tommy Wiseau. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking we watched, um, I, I've forgotten what it was called, we watched some kind of film that was a, it was like a documentary about the cult of the room. Yes, Wiseau Films put out this documentary, which you can get on Amazon, I think. Yeah, and it's just, so much of it is these really douchey kind of hipsters mm-hmm talking like ironically about how what a great movie this is Mm -hmm. and i mean like i guess i'm sympathetic because i very quickly ran out of ways to enjoy the room like once it was no longer a cult thing like after i saw it at the royal once i was like you know that's pretty much Mm -hmm. you know like i'll never be able to kind of experience it authentically like the the first time like once you once everybody knows like you're tearing me apart lisa Mm -hmm. like it's just it's it's done yeah but, you know, in those kind of douchey, you know, little commentaries people do on the on the movie, 
you know, I think there is something a little bit annoying going on there where it's people who've gone to see a thing, but then also pretending that they're kind of above it. Well, I think part of what people find so powerful about The Room is that it is actually one sad man's tortured expression of something that means so much to him. And I think we can all empathize with the idea of, or or at least identify with the idea of believing in something so much and putting it out into the world and having the world reject it. And I think when people are mean to The Room in the way that some of the people in that documentary are, they're... They hate, they hate that vulnerability. It's not enough to talk about those fighting for freedom, for equality, until you are one of those fighting. Believe me, I know, I fight a lot. I'm Jackie Chan, and I am coming out of the closet as a friend for those fighting for equality. We're nearly done. Uh, there was just kind of a few other, like I guess, formal podcasty things I want to do. I don't think we've ever done an appeal to ask people to just give us a five-star rating if you like the show on, you know, various mediums. I believe we're on Spotify. Uh, I know we're on iTunes. Okay, we're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Yeah. Ratings, I don't really understand what they do, but there's something to do with, like, algorithms. So, you know, I, I, we have, we, Michael and us, believe it or not, has charted a few times. Yes. Because Will had the foresight to put us in the, like, film and movie podcast as opposed to the comedy one so or the politics one or the politics which is one. really cutthroat these days yeah so <laughs> i mean we'd be competing with all the greats pod save america you know <laughs> and a while ago we were actually nipping at the heels of like the minions podcast from a couple <laughs> years ago where they just did it was like for despicable me two or something and they only had two episodes yeah so that's like the kind of company we're keeping folks but <laughs> you can help us leapfrog the despicable me two podcast yeah. by by giving us a, a five-star uh rating on soundcloud and itunes uh we'd appreciate it i think like one of the things that i'd like to get better at is uh, you know i i think um you know we have a very like nice professional sounding podcast but i don't think we lean into the podcasting you know lifestyle enough <laughs> <laughs> i think we should we should uh we should you know start making like cynical appeals to get people to like you know upvote us and stuff like that because because social media is a war well i mean as a man a cutthroat war of memes to quote a great philosopher of our time as a man who's currently living the sex and drug lifestyle <laughs> that comes from uh you know hosting two podcasts <laughs> i really don't know what you're talking about so uh this was fun and uh, we'll be back again soon with uh probably a bit less of an esoteric choice we have uh, some plans for uh hopefully some good guests in the next few weeks and it might not be uh quite two weeks until the next one so uh keep an eye on your itunes and soundcloud and uh we'll be with you again soon there's a lot of messages in it huh <laughs> now watch this drive <laughs>
我写我一生的诗，情共爱，泪如刺，真情是意。生命豁出去，留下了惊人快思。英雄有骨气，同是世界似醒狮。冲前去，全部得失自由全心志。步上，云上我要去飞。